Hey, everyone. It's Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. We're the company that produces this podcast, and I really want to talk about this show with you because that's what we do on the site at Ricochet.com. We have conversations about politics, economics, science, history, books we're reading, the lighter things in life, great conversations between and among our contributors like me and our members like, I hope, you. Go to Ricochet.com slash join to get your first 30 days for free. That's Ricochet.com slash join, and thank you for listening. Welcome to the June edition of Glop Culture, the podcast that asks the question, can three guys talk nonsense for an hour and sound profound and entertaining? I'm one of the three guys, John Podhoritz, here in New York, also in New York, about a mile away, but in another century in terms of his hip workplace. His <laughs> yeah, I'm in the 20th and you're in the 16th. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This, the, Rob Long sitting in this postmodern Euro trash workspace uh, in the nomad neighborhood, which doesn't even really exist. Yeah. But there he is, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm all right. Sorry, and my workspace uh, vexes you so. I, well, I, it vexes me because I envy it, because oh. it, is, it is an unbelievably cool workspace, whereas I'm sitting two floors above Al Sharpton in the Garment Center. So that's my yep, – that's uh, sit, sit, uh, sit above Al Sharpton. Sit on top of Al. Anyway, Well, he, there was a floor between us, fortunately. So I'm not, in fact, sitting on top of or even in much proximity to Al Sharpton. Hey, who else the line? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just sitting here in my, uh, my oh, lavish so refrigerator box with, a, uh, with some eye holes cut out. Um, that's Jonah Goldberg in Washington. In his hey, everybody. box. Speaking John, of that, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah what, do you, what do you say when you see two homeless people making out? What do you say, Rob? Hey, you're the vice president of the United States. What are you doing? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? Punchline is get a box. <laughs> John, remember the TV show that was based on a, a guy who grew up in a cardboard box watching TV? Uh, yeah, wait, was that Get a Life? No. No, it was, uh, Prophet. Remember oh, that Prophet, oh, that's right, the guy who was, who was, like, kept, that's right, with, uh... The sinister dude who was raised in a cardboard box, and all he knew about was TV. I mean, it's, it's, it's they were so on the nose about Rob Long, it was spooked. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. my problem. Except, uh, except he grew up in a nice Episcopalian box. Yeah. <laughs> he, grew up, he grew up in, in a very nice, very tasteful box. A little, you know, there's some fraying around the cuffs. You know, it's, just, so it's, called, assault, the uh, it's called the, the patinated charms of our box. And, of course, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, we allowed ourselves to live in a white box. But then right after Labor Day, we just had to put it away. Exactly. Now, Rob, mm. I think that of all of us, you, perhaps, more than everybody, should have a little gloat because we are speaking two days or actually a day after the revelation that in the month of May, uh, Donald Trump raised less money than a Chick-fil-A franchise in Provincetown. <laughs> That's a very specific comparison. Thank you very much, and I think you perhaps you know that 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 we learned that uh, we learned that in the month of May, uh, three point one million dollars, uh, and has one point eight million dollars on hand, roughly forty two times less 
than the, Hillary There's Clinton. a whole bunch of things that, that are sort of the tautologically wrong with him. Um, I, this is what I said on Red Eye last night. Have you ever seen the movie uh, or the play, for that matter, Grey Gardens? Yeah. It's yes. about you know, two you know, formerly rich um, people living in this uh, – mother and daughter living in a um, – Grant used to be very, very grand, and they're crazy now and delusional. And there's cats and raccoons, and all, you know, all the wildlife of the area live in the house with them. The windows are open, and they and they they, they mutter to themselves and walk around this old house. And they take the cat food and they put it on toast and they eat it and they call it pate. That's how delusional they are. Um, that to me is what is the, the the Trump campaign. Trump Tower is now Gray Gardens. <laughs> because they're wandering around there delusionally thinking that something is going to happen and it's not going to happen. You can't spend a year saying people who, who get money from donors are corrupt. I don't need money from donors. I'm really, really rich. I can self-fund this thing. Um, I'm going to run my own campaign my own way and then turn around and <clears throat> file the FEC filing that he did uh, on Monday. It's That's crazy because what it shows is you desperately need money. You do not have the ability to self-fund. All the money that you raise from here on until the middle of July or end of July is going to go back to paying yourself. He's his own biggest vendor. Um, you know, He's going to make America great again, but he's going to you know get a little rich while he's doing it. No one's going to give money to this guy because you are literally giving money to him, not to a campaign. And um, – and I just – it seems baffling to no. me. Nobody knew this for a year. This is not like a new information. This is the way it is. And, and at no point did he bother to like ask any questions about you know how this stuff works and nobody bothered to tell him how stuff works. So all the, the – his kids who everybody says are so great, what were they doing? Sitting on their butt all day, uh, going to rallies and getting cheers. Nobody bothered to read a book about how this stuff works, about the, what the law is. It's, but um, you know so, what? You know, you know what? Yeah. You know what astonishes me? I think it's pretty simple. The guy now is in a position where the only way that he can raise $150 million is to put up $150 million. That is to say, if between now and the convention, he wrote his campaign a check for $150 million, a bunch of right-wing donors would say, well, he's serious. You know what? He's serious and he wants to win and we're, and we'll go in with him. Those loans and he'd have he to forgive the $40 million in loans that he's already given, right? So – the only way for him to raise money now is for him to give more money than he ever wants to. If he doesn't do that and he doesn't self-fund, he's going to end up going the uh, campaign finance, public financing route, which will give him about $90 million. And Hillary is going to raise $750 million. So just so Republicans who support him understand, Hillary Clinton is going to go into this election with an 8 Eight times the amount of money that Donald Trump will have. Eight times the amount of money. Right. At the and, at best. At best. Right. For Donald and Trump. It's, and by the way, it's not that he's been doing this and yet he's leading in the polls so he has a reason to be proud of it. He is now mired and has been for 12 days under 40 percent in the real care politics poll of polls. He's at about 39 and he's going down. So he is now at a historically low point for a uh, – for certainly in an open race for any candidate, number one. And number two, he has no money. And well, number you know three, what? his this campaign, his, 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 the this, person he's going against has all the money in the world. This is like, yeah, but John, super biased. This, we're being super biased. Let's bring in Jonah. Jonah's a Trump supporter. Jonah, <laughs> tell us why uh, he's got it all worked out. Well, frankly, I, this analysis is all wrong because – 
we all know, and I know this for a fact from my Twitter feed, that if people like John and Caleb Howe and the little loser beta male conservatives at Hang Around Commentary and the Weekly Standard would right. just stop tweeting negative things about Trump and never Trump hashtags, Trump would turn all of this around. Because really that is the only thing holding Trump back is the 37 conservatives on Twitter who aren't going all in for the guy. And you can't tell them, you know, it's amazing. I will point to you know, Trump has Trump has is un, is viewed unfavorably by what is it, John? Seventy eight percent of women Some, in this country. Yeah, <laughs> and he's um, he's losing married women, which Mitt right. Romney won by twelve. Um, he is. I, mean, I, I said it as a joke a while back, but it's it's kind of stuck. Ass cancer polls better among Hispanics than Donald Trump, and and right, right. But it's just because. National Review and commentary and the Weekly Standard won't rally around this guy that he's having any trouble at all. And even so, he doesn't need any of us, and he's going to win. But if he doesn't win, it's all our fault. And Where, where does that come from, this idea that if you say something, that you're you know, giving – uh, something to the enemy. And that's what they always say. Like, oh, don't shut, don't spread it around. Don't give comfort to it. Like, as if somehow, if you don't say it, it isn't true. If we don't, if we don't mention the fact that he's broke um, and doesn't have enough money liquid in his in his own bank account to self fund, that 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 somehow that that it won't be true. Right. right. Also, the idea is that that Hispanics in Ohio and and blacks in Pennsylvania and all these people are waiting with bated breath to hear to read. John Podhoritz's next negative. <laughs> hey! <laughs> hey, they are. Hey, you know what? I'm sick of this. This uh, being made fun of by you guys. It is in fact the case that I am solely responsible for Donald Trump being under forty <laughs> percent. Well, I, I I wear it as a badge of honor. If I were not doing this, he would be at fifty-two percent. I'm I, I'm giving myself twelve percent. I'm having a twelve percent effect on this election, and so, I'm going with that. So I, I was working. I was working on a column about this exact thing, right? Not about the Twitter stuff, but about Trump and his money. And and uh, you know, here's a preview of it. Trump should put his money where his mouth is. You know, I mean, I the simple fact is, I mean, Rob, who you know basically lives the life of a billionaire anyway. Um, but we all know, like, if you have ten billion dollars, which we know Donald Trump doesn't have, but let's just say for the sake of argument, you have ten billion dollars. There is not a single, not a single sacrifice to your lifestyle, to the style to which you've grown accustomed if you spend a billion dollars. It's not like if you make $50,000 a year and a $10,000 hit is a huge sacrifice. When you have a billion dollar, when you have $9 billion left, you can still pay for your jets. You can still live in one of your, you know, 40 apartments and houses. Um, and really, there's only so much to buy in the world. You're right. Right. Now look, Mike, Mike Bloomberg, when he was considering running, Mike Bloomberg was prepared to put a billion dollars into a race. Now, Mike Bloomberg actually has a billion dollars liquid. So yeah. that's the Mike Bloomberg story. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. For a year, wise, populist, anti-intellectual, intellectual, anti-intellectual, intellectuals have been telling us you've got to read 
Scott Adams, the guy who drew Dilbert, because he explains how Trump creates the circumstances under which a guy like him wins. He tells people who he is. He tells them what he can do. He tells them, he tells them, and he 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 makes them believe in him because he believes in himself and he talks his way through it. Well, you can't talk your way into having $100 million in your fund to get to become president of the United States. That you can't you can you can talk people into thinking that you have 10 billion dollars when you don't. But when push comes to shove mm-hmm. and the accounting firm of, you know, of Moskowitz and Moskowitz has to issue the paper, the always the Jew the accounting firm, ha, huh? it's just like uh could it be O'Sullivan and O'Sullivan? Had yes, it could. So I will I will, I will, I will, defer, I will defer to you and your alt right neck friends. <laughs> <laughs> and say O'Sullivan and O'Sullivan. But when it comes down to it, money is money and a bank account is a bank account. And he's got $1.8 million but this in is his bank gardens. account. This is what I mean by Great Gardens. It only works if we all decide we're going to eat the cat food and say it's pate, right? <laughs> you, you sit on the subway and there's a crazy person there sitting next to you muttering about something. You don't challenge them. You say either you get up and move or you just kind of nod and smile and let it go. I have $10 billion. You say, oh, yes, of course you do. I can do whatever I want. Of course you do. Everyone's going to vote for me. Of course they are. And you just kind of – and you wait and wait and wait. And that's kind of what we did with this guy. And now he's uh, – guess what? He's, he's, he's owns the subway. I would like to read to you though, just so you know, that you're not the only two who get this stuff. I was on Red Eye last night, probably my last appearance on Red Eye for a long time because I sort of went off on Trump. And these are some of the tweets I received this morning. Man, you have some mental issues. If you are Hillary, you are sick in the head and must have been raised wrong. Typical liberal. <coughs> California, New York. I guess you. I guess they are right. Most of the media is liberal. I guess you learned some of that in college. Media like you should shut the F up. Um, whatever you write, I would not read. It's garbage. Hell, I'd almost rather read what Hillary writes. You both suck. Move to Mexico, man. And after looking at your profile pic, are you a Muslim? And yes, I am for profiling them until we can vet your companions from Damascus. Signed, Jeffrey Lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... You know, from Damascus be my title of my autobiography, but go ahead. So, I mean, I still think the really interesting thing is if you wanted to make the argument that, as people did last year, that Trump was only entering the race in order to help Hillary get elected, you could have no better data point than the fact that the month after he wins the Republican nomination, the same month that Mitt Romney scored 78 to $80 million in, in donations to run in 2012, he, he, he raises $3 million. I mean, yeah. think, about, think about the differential there. Now, why do people spend this kind of money? Why do they raise this kind of money in politics? It's an arms race. So you have to raise it because the other person is raising it, and you need to neutralize the effect of the other person's money. They advertise against you. You advertise against them. And if all goes well, you you know you knock each other out of the box, and then whoever succeeds on the margins with the money, with get out the vote or a really good ad somewhere, or placing ads really well in in battleground states, will will have the better of of, of the use of it. Here we have a to- an act of complete disarmament on the part of the Republican Party through Donald Trump because there is no way on earth that he is going to be able to raise a fraction of the money that Hillary is going to raise from a standing start at the end of June. It's not going to happen. And what's even more amazing is all this talk about how he is the person for the people who haven't been 
they haven't talked, they haven't heard, no one's ever talked to them, he's talking for them, and blah, 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 is that Bernie Sanders raised $240 million with 6 million individual donations, and Donald Trump raised a million eight last month. I mean, think about that. Now, why mm-hmm. would a poor person give Donald Trump money? He wouldn't. Trump's been saying that he's got $10 billion, so it doesn't make any sense to give Trump money, and Sanders doesn't have any money, so giving him money makes sense. But if he were igniting, if he were setting the world on fire with enthusiasm, surely he would have done better than this. Surely he, surely he would have had little old ladies sending him $25 here and there, you know, at least 50,000 of them, which would have been a million bucks. Well, the thing is, during the primaries, he said... Over and over again, I, I quote one of the things in this column I'm working on. He said over and over again, I am turning away so many people who want to give me millions of dollars for my campaign. Right? <laughs> in, one, in one press conference, he said, I had a lobbyist call me the other day. He, offered, he said, I want to give you $5 million for your campaign. And I said, no, I don't want to take that kind of money. I don't want to do it. I'm not, that's not who I am, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so – the idea that somehow there were these millionaires and fat cats and lobbyists falling over themselves to get on what at the time most people thought was a joke campaign. Um, but now that he's the presumptive nominee, none of them are calling? You know, I mean, he was so obviously lying back then. And that's the thing. He's just been lying about his money from the get-go. I, I, there is no one who is worth a billion dollars, never mind – $10 billion, who cuts YouTube videos of themselves hawking steaks for the Sharper Image Catalog. They don't sell nutritional supplements in road shows. It is, this is not what billionaires do. You ever see a singer out there saying, man, do I know steaks? You know, mm-hmm. just look at my skin. Look at my skin. You see, see its fine texture and youthful appearance? Well, and that's did you see the Meet the Press? I got, is it Katie Turr? She interviewed him and interviewed Trump and asked him about this before the money came out um, and before the Lewandowski firing, which why they did that before the report came out is another topic. But she asked him about it and he said, hey, look, I don't think you need to spend that kind of money. Who says you need to have ads? Look, I do a lot of media. I'm on the show right now. It's like a commercial. It's a little tougher, but it's like a commercial. Well, how many people does Donald Trump think are watching – Sean Hannity every night, you know, that aren't already voting for him. How many people are watching Meet the Press? I mean, you're talking about a universe of about 5 million people. He needs 65 million people it to is vote crazy. for him. The innumeracy is crazy, but I think it's kind of a cultural thing. People tend to not, do not understand the scale of something, uh, the scale of what uh, of what you need to win the presidency. This, I mean, people in Hollywood don't do this either. I said this before, but people in Hollywood are always saying to politicians, you should listen to us, man. We, can, we tell the stories. We were storytellers, and we communicate, and we connect with the American public. Well, uh, to win a presidential campaign, you've got to get 65 million-plus people to vote for you. This year, that will probably get you to lose. But 65 million people have got to do one thing on one day, most of them. Some of them have, and then have to do it at home, maybe, if they could vote by, by mail. But mostly, they've got to go to the polling booth and, and, and do something on one day. That is the equivalent of a billion-dollar movie opening. Not a billion-dollar movie, but a movie that makes a billion dollars on its opening day. Nobody in Hollywood knows how to do that. That's really – by the way, and, the, and there's another movie, a billion-dollar opening in the next theater. 
Right. Like that, that's that's an insane. Yeah, and it's, insane right. And it's going to make nine hundred and eighty million, and you're going to yeah. make a billion, and then you're going to win. You're right. Yeah. And it's as if as if people people all think, hey, I got ten thousand Twitter followers. We're gonna we're gonna reach everyone. I mean, it's a, even I have this problem when people, hey, listen, Trump got a lot of got more votes than any Republican in that primary. That is less than half. The number of people who voted for him is less than half of the number of minority voters in November. That's how bad that number is. That number is not a sign of his incipient success. It's, it's again, it's cat food, people. It's right. cat food on toast. Well, I'll give you another example of it. <laughs> he got about 14 million votes or 13.8 million votes in the Republican primaries. And in 2012, there were 14 million Hispanic voters. Okay? So, assuming that he gets one in ten of those, his vote, his, his base... His base vote is totally neutralized right there. It's gone. And she got 17 million. So, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what this so, And he's underperforming with white voters. <laughs> no, he's underperforming Mitt Romney with white voters. Right. You know what? what he needs? You know what he needs? He's a course of something. What he needs he some needs, education. He needs to sign up for the great courses. Plus. Yes, That's does. what he needs because he seems to have an education problem and the Great Courses Plus, which we've been telling you about for a while now, many of you have signed up for this great video learning service. You already have access to 7,000 fascinating video lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you are one of those people like Donald Trump who hasn't signed up for the Great Courses Plus yet, now is the perfect time since we have a special offer to tell you about shortly. Let's you learn about anything that interests you, history, business, even how to cook, play chess, speak Spanish. You can watch these engaging online videos anytime, anywhere, using your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. One of the courses we've been watching is The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Look at certain misconceptions from World War II have shaped American policy, how issues during the 20s set the stage for cultural shifts in contemporary America. We know you'll love The Great Courses Plus like we do. Sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free. To start watching as many lectures as you want, that's actually one month free, not a Trump one month free. That's a real, actual one month free. Make sure to check out the course we watched, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Start your free trial today. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. And we thank The Great Courses for advertising here on Glop Culture, which... Uh, you know, one of the many weirdnesses of glob culture, as you know, is that <laughs> we talk about culture. We don't just talk about politics. We talk about box office and all that. And I think uh, we're, we're uh, all of us reeling from the many ambiguities and contradictions of the stunningly photographed ninth episode of Game of Thrones on Sunday night, in which finally, uh, after five seasons... Uh, our favorite, uh, our favorite and least favorite illegitimate children of the world of Westeros, Ramsay Bolton, the evil, horrible, torturer, rapist, and monster, faces off against Jon Snow, the nice, uh, moral, upstanding uh, son of the uh, cursed House of Stark uh, in a really stunningly photographed battle. But I believe Jonah and I both wish to register some extreme exceptions to the battle, what happened in it, and what it tells us about 
the people that we've been rooting for in the course of the show. Jonah, do you want to kick off the sure I'll, uh, I'll, the threnody of uh, the threnody of anger? Wait, wait, I haven't seen it, so no spoilers, okay? Just tell me what you think without telling me anything that really happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Spoilers coming. Oh, no, okay, well, we'll do it this way. Well, Spoiler I, I, alert. No, I was kidding. I'll yeah, start low. We're going to spoil the hell out of this. Okay, so this for starters, yes. Um, this is going to be spoiled worse than a taco bowl at Trump Tower um, on, on, the, on the 8th of Mayo. Spoiled worse than <laughs> Alabama gas station sushi past date. Um, okay, so... Uh, but no, I'll do this. I'll do this as a hypothetical, Rob. If if, if you were a giant, uh, wouldn't you want to have some sort of large weapon <laughs> that you could use to attack enemy forces with, like a axe or a sword? I mean, that was one of the things that just drove me crazy about the battle was the way or just and, a very big stick, just a telephone pole, yeah, a tree, yeah, a tree. So, you know, swing a horse. Um, you know, everyone's using the sort of Spartan method of shields and long spears to, to defeat the good guys. And here, you, if you were in that position, one of the first things you would say to yourself is, man, wouldn't it be great if we had a giant who could just, like, leap over the shields and kill all these people? And they just – they did not use the giant properly. That is, a, that is one of my small peeves. And now that the giant is dead – sorry, Rob. Um, you know, it wait, will wait, never wait, – wait, wait, what happens to the giant? Um, well, he is, he is, um, he goes to live with a family. He's, um, <laughs> he, he debuts, he debuts in yeah. Steven Spielberg's next, next movie oh, uh, wow. on, on the 4th of July. Well, uh, no, basically what happens in this battle is that is it's a fight over the house of Winterfell, which is where the series began. It's the home of the Stark family, which is the only like d- halfway morally decent family in the world of Game of Thrones, and all we've done for the last five seasons is watch the family get dragged through the mud. It's it's uh, you know very noble leader killed in the first season. Um, his son, who is sort of a noble rebel, getting killed in the second season or the third season. Uh, his daughter's th- one ends up sort of like a a blind servant in a weird temple where they kill people. Another daughter is 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 ends up as the wife of this uh, malignant rapist torturer, and his, uh, his another one of his sons is disappeared. That was her second and, husband too. The first one was no great shakes either. It's like that's right, that's right, that's right. She's married. This is on married Sunday to, night, right? Sunday right, night. Sunday Put night. And, up then, and, ice cream. and then one one's one son is now essentially a kind of vision a visionary tree. <laughs> Which I can't even explain. It's my question to you. But basically, it turns out if you follow the logic of everything that's going on, these Starks are nothing but bad news. Yeah, it's there. It's there. The stink. Here's my question. Is is anyone in this TV show ever nice to anyone else for like more than a day? Yeah, they are. Yeah, the Starks are nice. The Starks are nice, but it turns out they're a bunch of idiots. They're a bunch of idiots, and they keep doing things losers. that are they do str- They're losers. They, they make deals. They're losers. They make bad deals. So what? What? What do we bad. learn? What do we learn? So basically, at the end of this uh, amazing uh, battle scene, where the Starks finally retake Winterfell, 
the army, this this sort of ragtag army that attacks Winterfell, which has been taken over by the bad guys, is like getting creamed. It's getting totally creamed, and then it turns out that the sister that yeah that uh, that Sansa Stark, the one of the Stark girls, has in her back pocket the knowledge that a army is going to ride in from the south and save them. But she neglects to tell her brother that this army is coming. She doesn't tell him. And basically, because she doesn't tell him and they don't use this as part of the strategy, thousands of people die who wouldn't otherwise have died. Hmm. Like, what is that? Why are we supposed to root for her now? Well, so because suddenly you believe that everybody in that TV show just has the has a sense of the preciousness of each human life. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. No, it's, just, it's a it's bad storytelling, I think. Yeah, I think no, it was it was the worst storytelling of the last six years, I think. Yeah, I think they just wait. So wait, just just wait. Just I, I just is the the creepy guy who was the creepy son who like had the other like slave kid who like was uh, uh, his like Ramsey is Ramsey dead yes. now? He's now alive. dead. Yeah. He's now dead. And he's he was dead, dead in the sense of like being dead by his dogs. Is he dead in the sense of being dead in the show or is he dead in the sense that he could come back to life through some you – know, maybe the tree or something, the magic? I don't think so. I think no. he come back to life because I believe he was eaten alive by dogs. Yeah, you'd have to go retrieve the various and sundry constituent parts from the pooper scoopers of Westeros because he was consumed whole by dogs. So. But but I'm just saying. Next next question: it, it, Was there a moment, uh, maybe during the eating of the dogs, did there was ever a sense in the show that like people who are evil they repent at the end? Like, you, oh man, I wish I hadn't been such a jerk. Or is it just uh, he goes like everybody else? It's just it's all straw, uh, you know. There is one repentant character in the show, and that is the that is the. Theon Greyjoy, the one who was tortured by yeah. the evil guy who gets who gets eaten up by dogs, who who was tortured by him and turned into kind of a mind controlled slave, and he breaks through the mind control and realizes that what he did, he did various bad things in betraying the Starks. He did it when he was terrible, under the and he's very repentant, and he oh, is the only yeah. repentant character. Evil, evil never wakes up and says, "My God, uh, you know, uh, on the road to Damascus, I'm not going to be evil anymore." That never happens in this world. No. See, I like. I, I want it to happen. That's my problem. I want someone to. It's like I, I want there to be, you know, a thing where the guy says, "Oh wow, I just really blew that. I wish I hadn't done that." And everybody goes, "Ah, oh, well, we forgive you." Here, you know, and they have a, a banquet or something, and then it fade out. I'm, well, I, if they I, had a if they had a banquet where they forgave them, then then somebody would come in and kill them all. So yeah. okay. it's it's unwise to have a banquet on this show. I just want want to let you know: don't have a banquet for children or anything. Yeah, yeah. Don't ever sit around just like having a conversation, you know, like in a field, because then five people are going to come and kill kill you all. Um. So you know. So look, I'm getting back to this complaint because I, I I think John's right. It, it's bad storytelling, and I wrote a big piece for the corner complaining about it the other day, and I've heard from a lot of people. It's funny. I basically only read the comments on my Game of Thrones posts now because they're the only ones where you don't get you know crazy bilious horror. Um, and uh, some of the arguments that people make are that um, this is them telegraphing that. That Sansa Stark is going to start becoming sort of like 
uh, as Cersei Lannister, trust no one. It's all, you know, she's, she's going to start playing the game of Thrones literally. And that they're going to have, there's going to be major distrust between her and, and, and Jon Snow and, and all, and all that's fine. I get all that. And the problem is, is that she basically consigned her own, she was the one who was, to use a phrase, bitching constantly about how you don't have enough men and you don't have enough troops. And then don't go to war. Don't go to war. We don't know. We have to get more troops. And he's like, well, where am I going to get more troops? There are no more troops to get. And she's keeping secret. The fact that she's got 500 horsemen on, on, you know, uh, the Knights of the Vale who can just cut through them like butter. And all she had to do was say it's a possibility. And they could have waited a day and everything would have been different. And it, it just it does not make sense in the context yeah. of it's, the it's just an it's 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 incompetence. And the only reason that we're really complaining about this, to be honest, is it is just a fantastic show. You just can't Great. deny you can't deny the 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 the, the this, this battle scene is one of the greatest battle scenes ever filmed. And there's a moment in it in which Jon Snow, our our sort of our hero, literally finds himself getting buried under by bodies that are being rampaged against. Oh, God, I and hate he that. Has to, and he has to climb up through this tangle, this, this stampede, up to save himself. And you don't know whether he's going to do it or not. That's one of the other glories of the show, is that you don't actually really know at any point whether a character is going to survive or is going to get is going Well, to get didn't, he died already, so they're not going to bring him back just to... Kill him again. Well, right? they might because that I mean, would be. It kind happen. of felt like yeah. they might. I mean, it kind yeah, of felt like they really set up. did. You really didn't know what was going to happen to him, and then and then, but the whole the the visuals, and then this happened also last year in the big bat in the two big battle scenes, mm-hmm. the one where where Winterfell was taken over, and the one where the where the uh, the White Walkers, the zombies, sort of beat the guys at the wall where. You actually get, unlike almost any other battle scenes in movies, you actually understand what is happening during the battle. They give you an overview shot or a series of overview shots where you understand who is where, who's going to break the line, who's winning, who's losing, and how the battle is going to be won. And it is like a revolutionary advance in storytelling. Well, that's, the, yeah, that's, that the, that's the con- contribution that the video games have made to that kind of – Maybe. Yeah, I was, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't play them, but but if that is in fact the case, so when you watch the show, when you watch the show, both of you guys, do you watch it alone? Are you like, hey, everybody out of the room, I got to watch the show? Do you allow for interruptions? Do you watch it on your phone if you if you have to? I mean, what what is your process for watching the show? I watch it alone. My wife has this. It's funny for years. I've had these, you know, geeky shows that I watch that my wife has no interest in, and she calls them all. It doesn't matter if they take place in space or whatever. She calls them all my wizard shows, <laughs> and she's like, "Daddy's gonna go off and watch his wizard show now." Do all and, have wizards. and this is like my one legitimate wizard show, <laughs> you know, even though there's not a wizard in it. And uh, so I generally either wait for my wife to go to bed or the kid to go to bed. Um, although I've started watching. On my iPad on HBO Go for the last three or four episodes, but I watch right. it. Alone. I watch it. I watch it alone because the same thing. My wife is not not interested um, in the in the show, and uh, and so I it's a it's a solitary, a sadly solitary experience. But but such such is life. My wife, I want to report from the last episode. I believe I told everybody to watch 
Wrecked on TBS, which premiered a week and a half ago, a show about uh, essentially a comedy version of Lost where a plane goes down and these people are, you know, uh, marooned on an island. Three episodes have now aired. The show is hilarious. And I don't say that because it's my wife's client is hilarious. She is. Her name is Jessica Lowe, and she is great. But I think these guys would acknowledge that I, I'm not the kind to walk around saying that it's really funny. It is lost, told from the perspective of a bunch of incredibly selfish millennials none of whom can actually believe that they've ended up on this island and they do everything wrong and they're, they fight each other and they're rude and they're mean and they're nasty and they're like breaking up into cliques and the whole thing is just laugh out loud funny. So that's wrecked on TBS. I really want to commend it because I'm very surprised by it. I was surprised by how good it is. And, you know, it's the best show on TBS since Sullivan and Son. <laughs> Well, I think it's the only uh, scripted show since Sullivan and Son, actually. Uh, I don't know that that's true, but it is it, – it, and, and it, it did really, really well in its first two weeks. No, so yeah. So it was uh, – it was um, try, uh, Angie so Tribeca. That. Angie Tribeca was the one in between. That's right. Angie Tribeca, which, which has been brought back for another season, and the less said about that, the better. Um, so uh, – but, you know, what more needs to be said about, if I could just say, is Harry's Shoes. We need to say more about Harry's shoes because every Harry shoes. You keep me. saying Harry's shoes. I'm saying Harry's shoes because on the corner of the block on which Jonah Goldberg grew up, there is a store called Harry's Shoes. I was waiting for this. Didn't we have this conversation already? We had this conversation already, and I am 97 years old, and I'm like one of the Sunshine Boys. Wow, that's Harry's shoes. But the thing is, it's not so. It's not. It's not it's, out, it's not an outlandish thought that you may be having like a small, you know, aneurysm or stroke or something. Not at all. It's not at all. I'm, I'm 55 years old. Dimension. And we got to call I've been it. in this business 47 years. So I'm going to read this thing about Harry's razors for you, okay? The Harry's Shave Club, the Harry's Shaving System. Sets of three. Don't, Everything don't commit to, a, don't commit to an three. accent because you have to do the whole, the whole spot. What does that have to do with anything? Well, get this. March is the third month of the year. It also happens to be our friends over at Harry's third three-year anniversary as a business, even though this is June and we're now celebrating the third anniversary three months late. If you're new to Harry's, I got a special deal for you. Try three of their expertly crafted five-blade German razors, a handle and shave cream for just 10 bucks. I was in the drugstore the other day walking down the razor aisle and I had to stop and smile because I don't have to wait for someone to unlock that stupid glass case with the key, with the thing, and the thing, pull the thing off. I don't have to pay those astronomical prices anymore because I use Harry's. Three main reasons to try Harry's. Quality, German-engineered five-blade cartridges. Close, comfortable shave, no cuts or burn. Quality guaranteed. Full refund if you're not happy. Price, factory direct prices. Cut out the middlemen. Ships right to your door. They sell their blades at half the price of the leading brand. And convenience, no more time-consuming trips to the drugstore with the key in this case. No more blades locked behind plexiglass. Find out what you need and check out in 30 seconds flat at harrys.com. Shipping is free. Free. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Go to harrys.com now. We're not talking about shoes. We're talking about razors. We're talking about shave systems. We're talking about shaving cream. We're talking about aftershave. Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code GLOP with your first purchase. 
That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And enter coupon code GLOP at checkout for $5 off. And start shaving smarter today. And I believe I should ask our producer, Scott Immergut, to contact Harry's shoes to see if they might want also to, you know, to, they want to chip in a little bit because they, they got some free advertising here on GLOP from me <laughs> because I'm so old and stupid. Um, now, not being uh, old, not being so uh, – and Scott says he, he'll, he'll try. Good luck to him because they're not the nicest people in the world, I have to say. <laughs> well, okay. Now you just ruined now, it. Well, Jonah, am I right? At Harry's oh Shoes? Harry's Shoes? They, um, they're a little full of themselves. I guess they're, what it... They are, it's a shoe store full of itself. It's true. When it's a very Upper West Side shoe store. When you're making a mint off of, let's face it, there are some obnoxious parents who go in there. And when you're making a mint, you know, extorting them for your kids' footwear for 30 years or 50 years... It can, it can, it can tend towards some arrogance on the part of the sales. Let's cut out the middleman. <laughs> cut out the hairy shoes here on Glob Culture. Now, um, Rob, not yeah. to continue with the with the theme of pop culture, the theme culture. of retail on the Upper West Side. Yeah. <laughs> well, across the street from Harry's Shoes is the was the Lowe's 83rd Street and is now the AMC 84th Street, and there is interesting trouble at the multiplex, Rob. Yeah, deep right. trouble. You know what the trouble is? Sequels. Well, I, that's not sequels. true. I mean, they're they're failing. Sequels. But that's that's um, that's because everything is a sequel or, or part of what they call you know a, a franchise or now they call them universes. So you're in a universe. Cinematic um, universes. Yeah, Marvel cinematic right, universe. Right. And DC and, uh, cinematic universe. Exactly. And. So those things are not doing as well, and the bets are getting bigger and bigger and bigger so that the failures seem more and more staggering. Um, it is also true to say that the one-offs aren't doing well. So they, you know, they'll put in some, some well-known stars in a comedy, and the comedy will sort of die on the vine in the theater. The, the, the way to describe this is not so much that it's specific to sequels. It's just that movies are having a really hard time. People are not going to the movies um, unless they're big. And huge, and even in that case, sometimes they don't go. So there have been some huge failures this year. There will be, be some huge successes. But that is nor- that is to be expected. Only people in the movie business feel like we've figured out a way never to lose money again. We just spend a whole lot of money on big, big movies and we'll always make money. But what they forget is that they're going to have the same ratio of hits to, to, to failures as they always did. Um, the, hits, the, hit, the failures are just going to cost more and sting more and hurt more. Um, so what you're looking at really is this queasy feeling among giant media companies that maybe the feature film business is not a place to go and make a whole lot of money. Maybe you should be building up your library and things like uh, you know your streaming online library, things like that. Um, Twenty seven, uh, thirty episodes of a series. I mean, Archer just got it was a cartoon, very low rated cartoon on FX. Got um, it's three three seasons ordered. Now they're only eight episodes apiece, but what's that all about? That's just about building up a library. Um, that that but seems to be what. So I look for all these companies to be to, to be breaking up in the next, you know, five years will be the breakup years, and you'll see um, Time Warner breaking up, and you're going to see definitely Viacom breaking up. Um, that's actually a foregone conclusion, um, and probably the only one holding steady. Or retrenching will be, uh, you know, Fox, 21st century. Well, Disney. No. Well, Disney. And Disney. And Disney. Yeah, exactly. Disney, Disney has, the, has the two working 
yeah. franchise models now. They have Star Wars and they have and they have Marvel. So they're about to do Indiana Jones. Uh, and they're about to do Indiana Jones. So that's three. So although word is that the new uh, word is that the new um, Star Wars movie is in trouble. Rogue One, which is supposed to open in December, which has that's been sent the, back for reshoots. Yeah, that, but the reshoots are in now. That that um, that movie is uh, the beginning of the Star Wars universe, so they're going to have a universe of Star Wars, um, and the theory is that that went back for reshoots to get it right, the tone was slightly off, but um, Iger saying, Bob Iger, who runs Disney, um, is saying publicly that he's very hopeful, and, he, and he's seen a lot of it, if not the whole completed film, and then it's really good, so... So he's saying I, it's, it's, not, also, it's not it's not the alligator that has seized Star Wars on the shore <laughs> of Grand Floridian and pulled it underwater and no. drowned it. I, I yeah, would say that Iger's had a pretty rough month. He has had a bad month. You know, he has had uh, a bad month. He's had alligators eating children. He's had uh, what else? There's a we had the, the girl from American Idol who was killed. That's right. She had killed. the Orlando shooter casing Disney World. Yep. You know, it's not, I mean, not good. These are not things that the guy from the publicity department who wanted to go on the trip wants to hear about on a Friday. You know, uh, so. yeah. So, um, but I will say this, which is that the the sequel, the the sequels crisis, isn't just about how people don't want to see sequels. This I've actually seen a bunch of these movies, um, like the the seventh X Men movie, which I saw, and Alice Through the Looking Glass, which I saw, and Olympus Has Fallen, which I saw. And they stank. They stank. They were terrible. They they deserved to fail and they had bad word of mouth. Whereas a movie that I was not that hot on but I understand why it was a total sensation was Deadpool, which was the first foul-mouthed kind of nihilistic comic book movie to come out in this new era of the comic book movies. And though I really didn't enjoy it that much – the, from the minute that it started, you knew you were seeing something new and fresh and different and funny and something that was going to push teenagers' buttons like nobody's business. And it did. And it cost $60 million and it's going to make $800 million. And it was off-brand and off-topic and it was only made because it wasn't really part of the, the Marvel universe. Right, it, right. Even though it was Marvel, it was made by Fox and not by Disney and blah, 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 blah. And yet the reason that it did well was because it was new. And also, look, they execute really well over there. Guardians of the Galaxy, the same thing. They just execute really well. And compared to DC where everybody's sort of glum and every movie's got to be really super, super serious, they are just cleaning up because they kind of get the idea that there's a sort of flexible appetite for these kind of movies. Um, now, that, that said, I mean, n- nothing lasts forever. These things aren't going to last forever. Um, and the the... Current Hollywood business model is bet make gigantic bets on what you think are sure things, and you know, I mean, I'm not a genius, but I can tell you that they're not sure things, and you're going to make a couple of gigantic bets that then turn up uh, big losers, and you'll see a bunch of people in the next three, four, five years, a bunch of executives getting frog marched out of their uh, offices uh, for the, these huge, huge losses. Um, look, there's no secret to that stuff. You just roll the dice. How did well, Ted Two do? Ted Two did badly, but really? the model, but the model of Ted Two, interestingly enough, that's a different kind of business model where the whole thing like is half financed by everybody made money on Ted Two except for the studio, I believe. 
Well, that's hard to know. Hard to know without seeing the deal memo. But Ted Two is because Ted One, I mean, the, the, Ted One, which was a gigantic hit for Universal, was a huge disaster for Twentieth because they own. Seth MacFarlane, he's got a giant deal, a first-look deal with them. He wanted to do this movie, and the head of the then head of that studio said, absolutely not. And there, you know, then this funny little movie went about a teddy bear talks, went over to Universal, and made just pots and pots and pots of dough, and it wasn't uh, a few more months before that. Then head of, of 20th was uh, turfed out, because um, this is exactly the kind of movie we want to make. Exactly the kind of movie we want to make is Ted. And so then Universal, thinking that well, we must be really smart. Um, they said, we'll make Ted 2, and we'll make twice as much. Instead, they made about half as much in Giant Disaster. So, again. You know, it used to be that that was the thought of sequels. The interesting thing is that this new thinking, it was always the case that sequels, you made sequels because they were, they were a relatively safe thing because they had brand, but you would expect to make a little less. And right. now sequels are made to make more than the original. And that seems irrational. Well, I know I don't think it's specific to that. It's that it's not that a sequel is is going to make more. That, that number two is going to make more than number one. It's that numbers two through six are going to make more than number one and going to make you know three x what number one made. And you can amortize the costs over two through six. That the idea is never that I'm going to make a movie and then if I'm lucky I'll make a sequel. It's I'm going to make a movie planning to make numbers nine and through twelve. That's the weird thing about these pictures now is that nobody. They, they don't even think in terms of two. They, they are making the world's most expensive cable TV series. They're yeah, that's, that, that's the gripe against what Warcraft that yeah, the whole right. movie, and also that Batman versus Superman movie, which was somewhere between not good and really awful. Um, you know, they they spent I don't know ten percent of the interesting time in that movie just setting up spinoffs. You know, I mean that was right. just. Right. Yeah. And um but like Warcraft apparently is all sort of laying down predicates and markers for subsequent movies um which you know the actual movie Warcraft no one thought was good enough to well, warrant it's a weird to story though having sequels. But it's a weird story about Warcraft because Warcraft tanked here but it made 200 million dollars in China. It's the first it, it's the biggest hit in the history of China. It's made twice as much money as any movie has ever made in China. Right. I don't know why, but you know that alone is going to make is going to ensure that there's a sequel because if you you know because if you know you could make two hundred million dollars in China, maybe your sequel will make three hundred million dollars in China. That would be their that would be their thinking if you can. It's sad, by the way, because work, which I which I didn't see and didn't want to see, the guy who made it, who was oddly enough David Bowie's son, Duncan Jones, made two really good movies before he made Warcraft. One called Source Code, with um, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and one called Moon with Sam Rockwell. Both of which were really interesting, intriguing, small, very well done movies. And then he spent four years making this lumbering elephantine mess which I haven't seen but I'm perfectly willing to brand a lumbering elephantine mess so but I you know, saw it's that's, not, that's the name of my autobiography that nod guy lumbering okay. elephantine mess go ahead but you know what's not a lumbering elephantine mess Rob what Casper mattresses no quite the reverse oh yeah Casper as you know I, I own uh, two Casper mattresses that my daughters sleep on it's a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress 
sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house as a sleek design and, was, and is delivered in a small, how did they do that size box? Which is amazing. You cut open the box, you cut open the plastic, and the mattress just bloings open. And it's smaller than you can believe. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow, which I now sleep on every night, and soft, breathable sheets, which I do not yet have. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500. Casper's cost $500 for a twin, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. Obsessively engineered, shockingly fair price, springy latex and supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. I didn't know they gave awards for mattresses, but if I had an award to give, gall dang it, I would give it to Casper. It is one comfortable mattress. Free shipping returns to the U.S. and Canada. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't have it, they'll pick up and refund you everything. Made in America. $50 toward any mattress just by visiting casper.com slash clock. You open glop at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I don't know where you guys are going to be, gentlemen, uh, next month. I will, in fact, be at the convention uh, from July 17th to July 21st. Will either of you be there to join me? I am going to the Republican convention. That's the one. I'm going to skip the Democratic convention. Um, and yes, I will be there. And this is the first convention. I got to say, I know John, you've probably been to more than I have, but I've been to every Republican and every Democratic convention, but one of each since 1988. And yeah, I think your I think your 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 record's better than mine, but and it's close. This is the first time, at least on the Republican side, I am more concerned about my physical safety. Inside the arena <laughs> rather than outside the arena. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Me too. I assume, I assume that the delegates aren't the people who tweet at me late at night telling me that I should get in an oven. But I, I, I don't know that for sure. I, I mean, I, I assume those are just people who live, you know, in their mom's basements and, you know. Yeah, I, I don't think it's those pleasuring people. themselves to cricket porn, but I, I could be wrong. But I do. I, I don't. I, I. I don't think it's those guys um, who are delegates. I think it's. But I, you know, there are going to be people who are very worked up about Trump, and if there is an attempted, you know, uh, which we didn't talk about oddly, an attempted effort to dump him at the convention, there are going to be some angry people who've probably been drinking for a while, and who will probably see me on Fox News and think that is a face I would like to punch. Well, listen, so, you know, speaking of, of, of dumping Trump, so I, my only scenario here is he's got no money. He's at 39% in the real clear politics average. If the next two and a half weeks are just a cascade of disasters in which his poll numbers sink lower, in which we start seeing evidence that it's affecting uh, down ticket races and in which he is raising no money and whatever his money bombs are that go out don't raise any money – you may see after the second week of July a real panic set in just as the rules committee is meeting in Cleveland setting the rules for the convention that would in theory allow for a rule to be written that would release delegates and allow them to vote their conscience. Now what happens then I don't know. Nobody knows. This has never happened before. 
what we're talking about in, in, in the modern context. You see, what I love about this, and I, I am struggling with this. I know that John is struggling with this. Um, I don't know about how lightly this burden sits on Rob's shoulders. But um, the, the desire to say, first of all, I told you so. But second of all, the desire to sort of rub it in people's faces who were all in for Trump, like Joe Scarborough, and then change course down the road. And it, that desire is very strong, but it's also one I think needs to be resisted. At right? least because until you, November. I mean, good Lord, come on. Oh, yeah, no, no when the, the final recriminations are going to be wonderful. But for the time being, <laughs> you don't want to um, rub it in people's faces. It's not magnanimous. You want to convince people to come to your side. That said, just for the moment, I love how all of this talk is about conscience, right, and about principle. And yet the everybody agrees that the precipitating factor for these people to be able to act on their conscience isn't having any doesn't have anything to do with their conscience or their principle. It has to do with falling poll numbers and bad <laughs> money raising numbers. And I'm not saying that there aren't delegates. I know for a fact there are many delegates who don't like Trump and they're looking they've been looking for a way out from day one. But the only reason why the sort of Republican establishment people are even considering this has nothing to do with conscience and nothing to do with principle. If Donald Trump were ahead of Hillary Clinton by 15 points, none of these people who are saying this stuff behind the scenes would dream of doing it. I just think there's a, it's almost a sort of a Tom Wolf irony to this that everyone, you know, the, the, Watching people's raw, naked, and very narrow political self-interest go down the crapper is what is causing people to talk about how we have to let people vote their conscience and stand like, can up. I, can, I, <laughs> can I offer you the moral argument? The moral argument is simply this. This election has become about Donald Trump, and to the extent that the election is about Donald Trump, he will likely lose. A change in the focus caused as a result of a change in the candidate could mean that the election will be about Hillary Clinton, which is what Republicans want. You want the election to be about Hillary Clinton, a referendum on Hillary Clinton. Trump is making that impossible. He is making that impossible even in his attacks today on Hillary, which go too far, which give him no room to grow his attack. If he starts his attacks on Hillary with she needs to be in prison and she's the she she you know she is her actions have directly led to the deaths of thousands of people. What, what does he say in September? What does he say in October? He says it louder. What crimes? But the louder that he says it, the less it's going to be convincing. That's the sort of thing you have to say quietly. That's the sort of thing you have to let flow over people. Mm-hmm. It is people that we like and that are friends of ours who, who have been desperate to see you know, people take it to Hillary, who sink, who have lost perspective on how to convince people who don't like her but aren't entirely sure why, why they should like her so little that they can't vote for her. And he makes that impossible. That is the moral case for voting. Oh, yeah. let, let me let me. Oh, like, there are all sorts of, just be, I, I want to be clear to people. I think, no, all I, think I think your argument is exactly right, Joan. I don't want to disagree with you. Yeah, there are all sorts of powerful why we should dump them. All I'm saying is that I think the juxtaposition of people talking about how we have to do the right thing 
only because the poll numbers <laughs> are going south is 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 weird. You know, it's just sort of a strange juxtaposition. That's all. I think we're going to be eating cat food all the way to November. <laughs> <laughs> and after November. Yeah. Because I don't think – it's not as though the house is suddenly going to get mystically cleaned but afterwards up. We afterwards, we don't, have to, uh, we don't have to pretend it's pate, you know? There you go. That's right. So we will just uh, – it's a party, a cat food eating party uh, from now until somehow the country and Republicans themselves wake up to the new reality, I guess. Yes. Cat food. I would. I would die for cat food. It's a crap sandwich. <laughs> it is <laughs> cat food. Yeah. man, that would be awesome for cat food. Anyway, <laughs> um, you know there 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 was there are teeny little bits of okay news. By the way, like uh, uh, Rob Portman, who's a very endangered uh, uh, incumbent in Ohio, has tied with. Um, with Bob, with Bob Strickland, the former governor of Ohio, in a very hard-fighting Senate race, uh, Toomey is uh, Toomey's doing okay in Pennsylvania, and now Marco Rubio, of course, has gotten back uh, in the race in Florida and is eight points up. So it's not as though there's no good news for Republicans, but give it time. There it is. Yeah. Now, uh, so Jonah and, I, Jonah, Jonah and I will be wearing Jonah. Jonah and I will be like the um, the soldiers. Uh, Ramsey Bolton's army uh, at uh, at Winterfell with the giant with the giant body armor uh, and the giant uh, swords poking out of them uh, just to protect ourselves on the convention floor in July. Rob, uh, you doing anything fun in July? Where are you summering as a verb, Rob? I'll be summering as a verb in in uh, Los Angeles. I I gotta get a job, fellas. I gotta go pitch some stuff uh, July or August, July and August. He's gotta I do gotta- some pitching. That's what I got to do. I'll be working. I'll be working hard. Be selling. Is there anybody to pitch to in July and August in L.A.? That's when it happens, my friend. That's when it happens. And he's got to be in the room where it happens. I would say in addition to Hamilton, I know I've been a Hamilton bore on this podcast, but I want to add another subject I can be a bore on. saw uh, a, a show last weekend. It was fantastic. It's called, the, uh, it's called Hades Town. And it's really terrific. Hades Town. Well, that's that's Anais that. Mitchell, right? That's this. Uh, it's this concept album that's now been made into a show. Show's fantastic. Great. Right? Okay, I'm. Or I'm you see, that's basically what it is. Uh, and I saw Waitress, and that's pretty good too, by the way. So that's the that's the theater report for the eleven <laughs> glob listeners who go to the New York theater. Um, Jonah will be at the convention. You're going to be anywhere else anyone can hear you talk. Uh, no place that people can hear me talk anytime foreseeable I can think of. Well, neither will I. So too bad, you guys. Uh, although in August I will be on August fifteenth, I will be at the at the uh, John Drew Theater at Guild Hall in East Hampton on a panel with Katrina Vandenhuvel and Alec Baldwin talking about the election. So if anybody in the listening area wants to come by to be one of two people in the audience who aren't going to throw things at my head, that would be very nice. That's the John Drew Theater if you want to look it up. Anyway, so for Jonah Goldberg and Rob Long, I'm John Podhoritz, and we will come back to you again with another heaping of good cheer and bad cultural advice here on Bye Gold. <laughs> exactly.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.